If you are a child and you're anxious about something, you're worrying about something, and an adult steps in to make sure that you don't have to deal with that thing at all, that we are going to put steps in place to make sure that you don't feel uncomfortable, you are saying to the anxiety disorder, we're putting you in charge, we're giving you what you need in order to further take over this kid, and it goes in the wrong direction. Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? In my opinion, this episode is among the best and most valuable of the podcast. I highly recommend listening to it all the way through, and I would love to hear your thoughts when you're done with it, via whatever platform you'd prefer, Twitter, Facebook, email, any of them. But before we start the show, I have a few things to share. First, it's been a minute since I last posted. I have been locked in the press of the sandwich generation with an ailing father and kids who have been hit with their own struggles. Luckily, I'm coming out of it. The boys are in a much better place now, and my dad's health seems stable, which opens up space for me to get back to the show. In fact, two episodes from now, to commemorate the 250th episode of this show, I will share a conversation with my wife and kids about the mental health challenges that we've been going through as a family that I think you'll find interesting. With any luck, you'll get validation on some of your own struggles, as well as ideas for how to address them. And second, on a lighter note, I've got merch. A while back, Tee Public contacted me to set up a store with them, and as of today, it's open. There's three t-shirts available, one with the ADHD Essentials podcast logo, one that says ADHD, Life on Hard Mode, and another that reads, I climbed my wall of awful, and all I got was this lousy shirt. Please check out the store, it will be linked in the show notes, and support the show by purchasing the shirt you like best. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Dr. Lynn Lyons. Lynn is a psychotherapist, author, and speaker in private practice for over 30 years. She specializes in treating anxiety disorders in adults and children. Lynn talks to us about her book, The Anxiety Audit, and anxiety in general. She discusses the differences between stress, anxiety, and worry, how accommodations play a different role in treating anxiety than they do with ADHD, where many parents go wrong with navigating their kids' anxiety, all-or-nothing thinking, and how anxiety affects us physiologically. All right. Let's get rolling. So I'm Lynn Lyons. This is my 32nd year in the mental health field, for better or for worse. I do a lot of training. I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of writing. And I still have a private practice. So I see a lot of kids and families in my office. I'm honored to have you on. I've been trying to get oh, you on for years and years. And I'm glad that I finally you. like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> but I, I understand busy. Like, I get it. That's where you were. You were mm -hmm. just like, I'm kind of floored. And I was like, ah, cool. And then you were you were good enough to write a book, and I was like, "Ha ha! 
Now I know yes, how to get her. Yes, that on. that will get her. Yes, <laughs> she she for totally self promotional purposes, she will make time. Yeah, which totally is the valid. Way, yeah, which is the way it works. I'm afraid, but yes, here I am. So thank you for your persistence. The book is called The Anxiety Audit, and it's great. I want to start with the introduction a little bit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit from it because I think it's important. You talk about going to see Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Mr. Mm -hmm. Rogers movie that came out back in 2018. And you talk about how at the end of the film, there's a clip of Mr. Rogers giving a commencement speech. And as he often did when ending a speech, he asked his audience to spend a full minute silently honoring those that smiled us into smiling, walked us into walking, loved us into loving. And as an outsider looking into you as a person, and as someone who thinks that folks who are doing good work should be honored, I just want to point out that your understanding us into understanding mm. those of us who are affected by anxiety to steal the frame of how Mr. Rogers is talking. Mm. That's what you do is you understand, especially anxiety, you understand it in a way that helps those of us who struggle with it to better understand ourselves and the beast that is anxiety. And so I wanted to start there by honoring your work and honoring you as a person and what you're doing. I'm very touched by that. Thank you. That is that is that is high praise in the way that you articulated that is very touching to me. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I I it's that stuff has to happen. I don't think we do that enough in the in our in our world. So I try to do it more often. Thank you. Um and then after that, I hit what I think is the thesis for the interview. This is on page 16 for those of you following along in the book. If you're not following <laughs> along in the book, go buy the book and then listen to the show. We'll um, wait. We'll wait while you go buy the book. Just hit stop and then we'll be sitting here when you come back. I, and I, I apologize to my audience for just reading at them, but it like I'm not going to do that for the rest of the episode. But a couple of things I thought were pretty critical. Again, top of page 16, if I can be an English teacher for a minute like I was for a while. Anxious families have some predictable dynamics. Anxious parents inadvertently demonstrate how to worry and overthink both directly with their children and through their own behavior. These parents are less skilled at showing their children how to tolerate uncertainty, independently problem solve, or develop an early sense of autonomy. As a therapist, I frequently see these skill gaps in anxious children. That to me, I think is going to be the crux of this interview. Mm -hmm. So as a framing tool, I wanted to to bring that up immediately as well. As a dad of anxious kids and a, and a guy who has ADHD, so of course I'm affected by anxiety and a wife who is also affected by anxiety, mm -hmm. we've had to learn those skills as parents. Yeah. We're not perfect at it because no one is, but honoring my role, even as a guy who teaches parents how to parent more effectively and is tuned into anxiety pretty significantly, I still mess it up. Of course, I still mess it up. I still mess it up. I do it for a living. I still mess it up. It's okay to mess it up. That's sort of our frame, right? Is, is mm -hmm. that's where we're going to be going. Can we start though with what's the difference between anxiety and stress? Because those words get used interchangeably a lot and they're not quite the same thing. Anxiety, stress, worry, nervous. There's all these words that uh, get used. So stress is usually situational. So you can have something that's stressful, that you've got a project due, you are trying to get on a flight and there's traffic. 
uh, you just got a diagnosis, which means that you're going to have to get some surgery and rearrange your work schedule. All of those things are stressful. And usually when we're talking about stress, we're talking about things that happen that then disrupt the way that we normally go through our lives and it requires a lot of us and it doesn't feel good. When stress becomes chronic, which it can, then it has an impact on our physical health. It has an impact on our sleep. It has an impact on the way we move through the world. It has an impact on relationships. But generally, when we're talking about stress, we're talking about, you know, there's an external thing we're dealing with. The pandemic was stressful. When we talk about anxiety, anxiety is an internalizing disorder. Anxiety and depression are referred to as internalizing disorders which means that the bulk of the work that you do is on the inside. So it doesn't matter to me, and I talk about this a lot, and this is probably the thing that is the hardest for people to absorb and understand. It doesn't really matter to me what the thing is that you are getting anxious about. It's how you deal with that thing on the inside. So a good example would be, you see a tarantula walking across your pillow and you freak out. That is a totally appropriate response. You see a daddy long legs up in the corner of your bedroom and you totally freak out. That is a response that we would refer to as an anxious response because you are not actually in a life or death situation, but you are setting off the same system as if you were. When we talk about worry, and people define anxiety technically as the physical responses you have when this system is fired off, not because it's a fear response, but because you are perceiving a life or death situation. When we are worried, that's the cognitive process where we are up in our prefrontal cortex and we are creating a narrative in our head about how something is going to go. And then that narrative, that cognitive process then goes ahead and sets off our fight or flight system. So those are those are sort of the way we can differentiate. I don't really care that much, to be honest, how people use those terms. Mm. Um, but you're right, they get bantied about a lot. Um, I do hear a lot of people talking about anxiety, 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 when actually it really is just sort of some stressful situation or they're worried about something. I feel like the the use of language to describe, and we can talk about this more because this is definitely a soapbox I'm going to, I'm sure, yeah. happy to get on. Um, but just sort of the language of over pathologizing what are normal human emotions and responses. You mentioned COVID. I'm a guy who, when I, when I do workshops, when I do, I do a monthly Q&A on another podcast and I kind of try to remind everybody, like, we're still in it. Like, it's not, mm -hmm. we're not done with that yet. It was a worldwide mm -hmm. trauma event that is kind of still around. Where's the line? Because I, I hear you that COVID is a stressor. But at this point, is it kind of becoming an anxiety thing, too, where people are just anxious mm -hmm. in perpetuity, or, or maybe not really, but anxious at this low-level tier because it's there, but it's not there, but it's there? Am I making sense with that question? Yeah. So I think what I see, so there's a few things about anxiety and COVID. One is that COVID didn't create the anxiety issues that we have in this country. COVID just capitalized on them. Mm -hmm. It made it a little broader. What we can see from sort of the recovery and the resilience, particularly of kids, is that those who were anxious before got worse. So the cracks became chasms. 
And those that were worriers, those that were anxious, remain anxious about COVID in a way that's probably not in keeping with the threat, which is mm -hmm. the nature of what anxiety does, right? Anxiety is not good at uh, what we refer to as reasonable risk assessment. You know, if you are a worrier, if you are an anxious person, you want certainty. That's its goal. That's anxiety's goal. And when COVID came along, anxiety was like, woohoo, this is a lot of uncertainty. I'm really going to make hay with this particular situation. Now that we're through what I can experience, what you can probably experience, at least where I live, we're through the dramatic part of it. And now it's sort of the, all right, we've got to figure out how to manage this. Those people that are continuing to be anxious about COVID, I would bet you three bucks that they were anxious before COVID. I didn't really experience people developing anxiety disorders solely because of COVID, but I definitely saw people who were anxious be pushed into a place where they really shut down. And interestingly, uh, during my, uh, you know, I, I went right online as everybody else did, and I'm working with anxious families and that kind of stuff. The, the people that I was working with, the families that I was working with, because they had developed some of these skills of being able to tolerate uncertainty and be better problem solvers, actually did pretty well during COVID. I was on the the local news station used to have me on all the time. Um, and so, I don't know, every two weeks or something, they'd do a segment and Lynn Lyons would come on and try and say something wise, but I was just, you know, felt kind of redundant. Um, but there was a, a family told me their little kid that I'd been working with was in the kitchen and they had the news on and they hear she, they hear my voice. Oh my gosh, look, Lynn's on the news. So I say my spiel and the little kid goes, oh my gosh, we already know all that, mom. Lynn tells <laughs> us that stuff all the time. If you were a little bit more conversant in the way that anxiety and worry work going into this, you did better. If you were being held hostage by anxiety prior to COVID, you really were held hostage during COVID and perhaps after as well. I see the same thing, even in my own family. And we're pretty conversant with, with anxiety. But uh, one of my kids in particular ended up with some more significant anxiety stuff. Mm -hmm. And that got worse as we rolled into COVID mm -hmm. um, and affected the whole family. And it was it was it was very challenging. I learned yeah. a lot about how to parent with anxiety um, bet. because there's this one of the things that was interesting for me as a dad um, and as an ADHD professional was the contrary nature between how to navigate ADHD and how to navigate anxiety, because ADHD, a lot of the stuff that makes ADHD hard is really dumb because you're doing it in ways that you just don't need to do it. And you're mm -hmm. doing stuff that you maybe don't even need to do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my ADHD approach is like, yeah, but just make it easier. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. need to be this hard. Let's right. make it easier. Right. But anxiety, right. depending on the severity of it, if you make it easier, anxiety is like, haha, now I'm going to make you do less of that thing and more of this thing and Correct. try to make everything easier because you're not strong enough. Right. Which is... And I fell, I totally fell into that trap because I took my ADHD approach, brought it to the anxiety approach for my kid, and mm -hmm. then it didn't work. And I, I sort of knew the trap was there because I would do things like, okay, cool. Don't worry about this in this moment. Like you're in the midst of a spike. We can deescalate the spike by having you not have to worry about it, but you're still going to have to do this mm -hmm. next time later, something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I was trying to kind of hedge my bets, but it still didn't, it didn't work. Um, and I had to adjust that. So that was a really interesting learning experience for me. 
you bring up the real challenge when we're talking about ADHD and anxiety, the accommodation challenge. When I talk about accommodations in the anxiety world, accommodations are what we're trying to get rid of. Families who accommodate anxious behavior do less well in treatment. Mm -hmm. So the more a family accommodates, the more we can predict treatment failure. When it comes to accommodating, we don't then want to say, well, all accommodations are bad because the reason we have accommodations for a ton of things is because kids need them and people need them, right? If you have ADHD, you have certain accommodations. If you have dyslexia, if you are deaf, if you've got cerebral palsy, there are all these things where accommodations are really, really important and very compassionate and necessary to learning. But what happened is we took the accommodation model, plopped it on top of anxiety, and it doesn't work. And this is where this is where schools are really struggling because when somebody says to me, well, what are the best accommodations for anxiety? My brain goes, Wah! because that's the exact thing that I am trying to address in my treatment. And if I go into a school and the, the accommodations are, as I often say, doing the disorder, then that's where we get into that tangle. Yeah. Can we play with the doing the disorder stuff a mm -hmm. little bit? Because that's... Sure. I did a workshop two nights ago and talked a little bit about my kids. And I was like, I was doing his disorder. And yeah. I, I said, that's a Lynn Lyons term. And then I continued <laughs> on with my word because I, I want to give you the credit for that. But can we talk a little bit about what does that look like? Yeah. How is it that parents might be doing the disorder for their kids? If you think about what anxiety wants, and this is why I like to bring it to life. This is why I externalize it. I give it a name. Um, you know, I call it Joanne. We can call it Peep. If you're a 12-year-old boy or an eight-year-old boy, we'll call it Poophead, right? That's the most uh, <laughs> common name. Um, Bob, too. Bob and Poophead are very, very popular uh, names for anxiety. But we pull it out. And that way we can begin to see, are we serving the disorder? If we know what the disorder wants... The disorder wants certainty, wants to know exactly what's going to happen. It wants to feel comfortable physically, emotionally, socially. If anything that you do is designed to create certainty and comfort in the absence of skill building, that's where we want to really pay attention. In the absence of skill building, then we are making the problem worse. So whenever you are anxious about something, and if you are a child and you're anxious about something, you're worrying about something, and an adult steps in to make sure that you don't have to deal with that thing at all, that we are going to put steps in place to make sure that you don't feel uncomfortable, you are saying to the anxiety disorder, we're putting you in charge, we're giving you what you need in order to further take over this kid, and it goes in the wrong direction. And yet I see it all the time, all the time. One of the things I talk with parents about is the concept of scaffolding, which comes out mm -hmm. of education mm -hmm. and the idea of like, we meet our kids where they are, but we also want to have an idea of where we want them to go. And we have to have at least a vague plan of how we're going to get them from where they are to where we want them to be. And as we get more skilled, that plan becomes more concrete and, and practical and less vague. An example of this is something I did with my kids around, they had flashcards. It was like third or fourth grade. They had to make flashcards, like write the word on one side of the index card and the definition on the other. And they shut right down because that was a lot of work. It was like 10 flashcards and big sentences and all this stuff. And I said to him, I was like, all right, cool. 
So I will write the definitions down and then I'm going to mix the cards up and then you just have to find the definition, match it to the word, write the word on the back. But I didn't do that without a plan. So as time went by, as the weeks went by, I did less and less work until, I don't know, a month in probably, maybe less, they were doing all of it. The advantage for me was that I didn't have to deal with my kids shutting down and we didn't have to start creating homework battles where previously there weren't homework battles. Correct. But I had an exit strategy. I didn't just do the homework for them and let them go. That seems to me the line between doing the disorder for your kid and recognizing and honoring the disorder, but having a way to help them build the skills they need to move through it. Correct. And and where it becomes problematic, and, and I love that you did that. I remember as you're as you're talking about that, I'm remembering with one of my children, with one of my sons reading, right? He he didn't want to read. He loved to be read to. So we made a deal. Remember the um what were those books? The treehouse books, right? The yep. the, a, the and magic the treehouse books. The magic treehouse books and the A to Z mysteries. Gosh, they mm-hmm. they loved reading those. And the deal was you read the first sentence of the paragraph and then I read the rest of the paragraph. And so that made it a fun experience. He still got practice reading. And then of course you can imagine what happened is that more and more, uh, he did more and more of his own reading. The way this goes awry is that when we have the attitude, when we have the understanding, the belief or the lack of understanding, I should say, that there's nothing you can do about anxiety disorders, that there aren't ways to get through it, that there aren't skills that need to be built. When we say to someone or when someone says, I have anxiety, so that means I can't handle this. And the way that we treat anxiety is to make sure that I never have to handle this. That's what's pervasive right now. So instead of you, you you have you it with your sons or your children, I don't know if they were boys or girls, but you had an idea of what was the skill that you wanted to teach them, right? In your head, you say, I want to increase their their ability to move through something that feels challenging, or I want to increase their stamina as they're doing work, or I want to increase their ability to ask for help, or I want to increase their ability to break things down, whatever it is. The same thing goes with anxiety. What is happening more with anxiety than with ADHD is I think, but you can correct me if I'm wrong because that's where you are, Sure, is, is saying you have this disorder. Anxiety is the most common disorder, the most common reason that parents bring a child to a mental health professional. It's also the most treatable. If you got to get something, anxiety is the thing you want to get. And when we say, well, you have this thing, you have this anxiety, and because you have anxiety, we are not going to either teach you these skills or we're not going to have the expectation that you're going to be able to learn how to manage or tolerate this. And instead, we're going to rearrange the world, what I call content-based reassurance and content-based interventions. We're going to rearrange the world so that your anxiety doesn't get triggered. Mm-hmm. That makes the problem worse. And that's what happens over and over and over again. I think it depends on the silo that you're in as to how even with ADHD that works. Because there's certainly some folks out there who are like, I have ADHD and that means you can't expect me to remember people's names or places on time. And I'm like, that's not accurate though. It means it's going to be harder. (laughs) Like, yeah, that part's true. Right. right. I can absolutely expect you to know who I am and get to places on time. I might be patient with it. Like when I do a Mm -hmm. workshop, 
None of my workshops on ADHD start on time Mm -hmm. because to me, that's inappropriate. They should start Mm -hmm. five minutes late because duh. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that like everybody that I work with, all of my clients, like, sure, come late whenever you want to come late. Like, no, be there on time. Like, respect my time. I'm going to respect your time. We're wrapping up when we're wrapping up. But I can see, I see it in ADHD circles. I see it certainly Mm -hmm. in like the the social media spheres where people are like, that's ableist. Yes. It's just the world we live in. Correct. Correct. Because you can't say to United Airlines, I have ADHD, so can you hold my flight for 20 minutes because I have trouble getting places on time? Right. You doing a workshop, mine often start five minutes late too, but you you doing a workshop, you're able to have that flexibility. And there are certain places where that flexibility is not going to work. And I see that same thing. And I certainly see it on social media. If I have this disorder then you are not allowed to expect anything of me because of this. And you're supposed to, if if you do something that makes me anxious, that's on you, Mm -hmm. right? It's your responsibility to make sure I'm not anxious. And you may see the same thing with ADHD as well. I tend to take the approach of you have this disorder. You're allowed to have this disorder. The, The metaphor I often use for this is asthma because I have asthma. If I suddenly have an asthma attack, that's not weird to the people who know that I have asthma. They're not surprised Mm -hmm. by it. Like, it makes Mm -hmm. sense. Of course, you have Mm -hmm. asthma. You're allowed to have an asthma attack. It's normal, Mm -hmm. even if it only happens infrequently. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for anxiety. The same is true for ADHD, whatever your neurodiversity is. Where it becomes problematic, I think, is if you judge me as wanting and find me to be morally inferior because my ADHD messed something up or I had an anxiety burst. I like asthma as the metaphor because no one looks at me and goes, oh, so you're just too lazy and unmotivated to breathe, huh? Like that Mm. doesn't happen because people are like, oh, you have asthma. ADHD works the same way. I'm not lazy and unmotivated. That's not why I got here late or I forgot your birthday or I didn't send that email. It's because I have ADHD. That I think is where the distinction lives. And there's a But there's this movement out there, not everybody, that's trying to say like, no, you shouldn't, it shouldn't, you shouldn't even feel inconvenienced by the fact that I was 20 minutes late to meeting you to go to the supermarket or go to the wherever we're going. No, I can be aggravated by that. It doesn't mean that I think you're a terrible person. It just means that I'm annoyed and you owe me an apology and then we can move on with our lives. Correct. And this is where I see this with families, families that do really well and families that don't is the acknowledgement and the openness about what you're dealing with. So I might look at this in terms of, because I treat a lot of OCD as well. So if somebody has some OCD stuff going on and it's very challenging, it's very challenging to the family, there is a huge difference if somebody says, you know what, I'm so sorry, my OCD got in the way of that and it wasn't really fair for me to impose that upon you. Versus somebody saying like, well, I'm sorry, um, as as a parent famously said to me in one session, what's wrong with a neat and tidy house? Well, this guy's obsession with having his house absolutely perfect dominated his family life in a way that made it virtually impossible for them to enjoy being together. So when when people say, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, gosh, I'm sorry I was late or, you know, whatever, is very different to me or to say like, oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. My OCD really got me there. I'm sorry. Versus, no, this is, you You need to accommodate me. This is my, th- I have OCD. So there's, 
the way that my OCD is going to rule this family. Yeah, no, that's what's going to happen. That makes a big difference. And that's really bringing us right back to anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether it's an anxiety disorder or it's ADHD or autism or some other mm-hmm. neurodiversity, mm-hmm. if you're coming from a lens of, no, this is my neurodiversity and you have to accommodate it and be accepting of it and never be bothered by it. Because if you are bothered by it and try to make a change, you're being like ableist or something. Mm-hmm. That's anxiety talking. That's not... It's not a reasonable stance because you're not cooperating with the people around you. Yeah. In the anxiety biz, we don't generally use the term neurodiversity very much. Uh, That's the water I swim in. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what I, (laughs) well, and because anxiety disorders, like you, if you have ADHD, I don't know, if you have OCD, it's it's hard to say, oh, we're going to be able to get rid of this, right? You're Mm -hmm. just going to deal with it. But there are a lot of people who have anxiety disorders where we do see them be Mm -hmm. symptom-free. So we don't talk about it in in terms of this is just your neurology. It's not because that's that the research doesn't even support that actually. Which is different for ADHD, autism, OCD. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. OCD too. OCD sort of can't make up its mind. Well, I mean, we know that OCD has a strong genetic component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, you know, people developing OCD and then people being able to manage it or then people getting through it, there's a lot of variability there for sure. This is bringing me to what I think is going to be a good distinction question. So let, give me a second to set it up because it's going to sound like I'm being anxious, I think, initially, but I'm not. Okay. I occasionally get the question where people say, can you just grow out of ADHD? Like, is that a thing? And we used to think you could. Now we're finding that that's not actually true. Mm -hmm. Um, But even when we thought you could, my answer was always, don't plan on it. Like, maybe. But if you expect that you've outgrown ADHD and then you have a major life change, because we know major life changes often cause ADHD symptoms to come back. Mm Mm-hmm. And that triggers your ADHD or brings stuff back. You might not look immediately at ADHD as being the reason that things are getting so much harder. Mm -hmm. And then you're not going to bring the right strategies to bear. Mm -hmm. So if we just assume we're not going to grow out of ADHD, we can be ready for something like that to happen. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in like an anxious, worrying way. I mean it in just like a prepared way. A planning way. A planning way, right. An informed way. In the same way that like, if you were an alcoholic when you were 38 and now you're 52 and you haven't had a drink since you were 38, you're still saying you're an alcoholic. You're maybe a recovering mm-hmm. alcoholic or an alcoholic in recovery, but you're not going, I have no problems with alcohol anymore because something can come back. Where I think that is that becomes a question of distinctions is that could also be anxiety, right? That could also be worry. So how do we draw the line between worry and planning or mm-hmm. rumination and reflection, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because that sort of worry is worrying, is being concerned about what's going to happen. Rumination is being concerned and anxious about what happened in the past. Correct. How do we distinguish between those, again, just for audience, worry yeah. and planning, rumination and reflection? Right. And both of those are in the category of repetitive negative thinking. Right. Which which the word repetitive being incredibly, incredibly important in the definition. So for one, we all worry. Right. That's that that's based on the fact that we, that our brains are capable of imagining things that haven't happened yet. 
right? This is, that's a higher level thinking that's in our prefrontal cortex. We can imagine those things. So it's going to happen. You can't be in this world and not sort of project into the future and think like, oh God, you, you know, we all do this. You hear something bad happen to somebody and then you internalize that a little bit. You worry about that for yourself. The difference between worrying and problem solving is that problem solving requires action. There is a plan and there are steps that you take. So say I'm worried that I'm going to leave the house without the equipment that I need when I'm going to do a teach at a conference. Well, I have a thing that I do before I leave the house. I go through my black bag and I have a little checklist and I'm like, okay, computer, uh, phone charger, dongles that I'll need, right? I go through that. That's not worrying. That's me recognizing that it's really important for me to have my stuff and that I have a way of checking and I take that action. Worrying is a mental process in which you go back over things over and over and over again. You catastrophize, you think about the worst case scenario, but you don't necessarily do anything about it. And if there's not anything then you that you can do about it, you continue to worry and and sort of go through it and see these outcomes in these negative scenarios as if there's something you can do about it. People worry about flying on an airplane all the time. Statistically, we know that flying on an airplane is way safer than driving in a car, but it's not rational. So we have to remember that. But if you decide that you're going to get on a flight, you're going to fly and go to your class reunion, or you're going to take your family on a vacation. And the whole time that you're on the plane, you're just worrying about whether or not the plane is going to crash, worrying, worrying, worrying. You're scanning the environment for any kind of input or data that's going to make this into an emergency. That's worrying. If you are flying on an airplane and you get on the airplane and maybe you know that the statistics are this or that, or maybe you know that turbulence is simply the air being a little bumpy, or maybe you know whatever you know, and you're able to absorb that information and get on the airplane and do what you need to do, that's different. But worriers don't take action very often. They go over the same information over and over and over again, and worry promotes normal life things to an emergency. Mm -hmm. Right. So so we're on this plane and we just hit a little turbulence. It's an emergency. No, it's not. It's a little turbulence. But worry promotes it. Your partner is 10 minutes late coming home from work and maybe they hit traffic or maybe they got delayed at work or maybe they had to stop and get gas or maybe they had to take a call, whatever. But worry immediately promotes it to an emergency. It goes to that catastrophic place. And people often believe or or mistake worry for problem solving. If I worry about this, if I think about it, think about it, think about it, I'm problem solving. You're not. I'm in some like mastermind groups for entrepreneurs kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that drives me bananas is when entrepreneurs are like, well, I'm taking all these classes. I'm like, why? Why? Just do the job. Like <laughs> do the job and you will get better <laughs> right. at the job. Right. You don't need to take 15 classes because that's right. it's kind of like worrying. It's this probably coming from the same mm-hmm. place yeah. where you're not really doing anything that's going to send you anywhere. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with taking a class, but if someone's taking class after class after class and they're not getting new clients, that's not a plan. It's a matter of degree. We had this saying, we had this saying when we were in college, when my husband and I were in college, we say it's time to write the paper. And we still we still use that phrase sometimes. If you're writing a book, 
you can say to yourself, I can't start writing this book until I have all the information, until I've done all the research, until I know exactly what I'm going to say. Well, you're never going to write the book. It's not going to happen. I want to pivot to um, all or nothing thinking Mm -hmm. because that's an ADHD thing, man. Like we get, we get hit with that pretty hard. Can we just play there for a little while and how that leads to anxiety and what to do with it? Yeah. So it's a global cognitive style is the technical term for it, or, you know, if we want to sound more official. So global thinking, all or nothing thinking, it also has a lot of rigidity in it, which is why it's so common in anxiety, because anxiety is a very rigid disorder. Things have to be a certain way. I have to know exactly what's going to happen. So when you are doing all or nothing think all or nothing thinking, you jump to big bad conclusions and you say global statements like nothing ever goes my way or I'll never get what I want or I always screw up or nobody understands me. And I think probably the reason that it shows up a lot with ADHD is it is the language of being overwhelmed. When you say that you're overwhelmed. Right. You're, you're standing in your basement and there's two inches of water that just came in and you're standing there and you say to yourself, I will never be able to clean up this mess. It also comes from us being really good at divergent thinking and not as good at convergent thinking. And that divergent thinking leads to a more expansive view. And that more expansive view can be kind of cool, except when you need steps and sequencing in order to solve a problem. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, it's divergent thinking is great if you're thinking, I don't know, give me you give me an example of a situation in which divergent ADHD thinking would be would be good. Can you think of an example? Even just brainstorming, right? Like even just I need to head in a new direction. What's that direction going to be? It can be really useful in those situations and it can be helpful with problem solving. Even when I taught, like I would teach and a kid would be like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And I would be able to go, all right, cool. Then I'll explain it in this way because the first way didn't work. I could usually explain a concept in at least two or three different ways beyond the first one because I could do that divergent thinking to go to another spot. So in those ways, it's useful. But when you're anxious, it's a nightmare. Right. And anxiety sort of goes in the other direction too, because it's all or nothing. So it's nothing is going to help. I'm never going to be able to figure this out. People always make fun of me. And I want to pull it back from there and say, you know, sometimes things don't work out the way you want them to. And sometimes people make fun of you. And sometimes, but they, they're this all or nothing. And what, what happens oftentimes when we're dealing with anxious kids is they say this big global phrase. They say, you know, nobody likes me. And we immediately want to come in there with evidence to the contrary. We want to dispute it. We want to say, no, that's not true. Um, if you're socially anxious, say, oh, people, people, I'm, I, if I go to school and I wear this, or I don't have my ponytail right, or if I say the wrong answer in class, people are going to judge me. And we like to say, no, people don't judge. Well, yeah, they do all the time. We can't go from one extreme to the other. The goal is with these big global statements is to one is to break it down into steps. So you're feeling overwhelmed. What's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? Sequencing, knowing what comes first, what comes second, what comes third. And then also being able to recognize that most things are not all or nothing. Most things are hanging out in what I call the mites and maybes of life. You walk into a situation and you're socially anxious, people are going to judge you. Some people are going to judge you kindly. Some people are going to judge you accurately. Some people aren't going to like you because your, you know, socks don't match. 
people are going to judge you. How do you tolerate the uncertainty of human interactions rather than needing it to be either nobody likes me or everybody has to like me or I'm not going into that situation? All or nothing thinking sets up these two poles that are really impossible to achieve. If you're worried about throwing up, if you have a metaphobia, it's called, and you're terrified of vomiting, you either think, I'm going to vomit all the time, so I have to make this my full-time job to make sure I don't vomit. And the only solution is to be able to guarantee that I'm never going to vomit. That's not possible. And throwing up sucks, and people don't like it. And it usually takes you by surprise, and it generally gets in the way of what you'd rather be doing. And we have to tolerate the fact that we don't know when it's going to show up. That's where the anxiety demand for all or nothing thinking and those responses really can get some traction. Because so much of this is managing uncertainty. Virtually all of it. How do you not know? How do you not know? Yeah. Um, I told a friend of mine that I was going to be interviewing you because she's a huge fan. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and and uh, and I asked her if she wanted me to ask any questions, so I'm I'm going to share her question with you now. Okay. So her son, who struggles with anxiety about the future, uh, to the point where he gets like a stomach ache and it affects his eating and and those sorts of things, mm -hmm. especially around worrying about the next school year. He's getting hit early this year because it's high school next year. Ah, uh, yes. Her question is. What do you do with it? How do you navigate anxiety when it starts to have these physical aspects to it? It almost always has physical aspects to it. So that's not unusual. Um, the goal is, first of all, is that if I were talking to her, and so she's got this eighth grader who's going into ninth grade, I assume, mm -hmm. is that does he understand how his stomach feels upset? Does he understand the physiology of that? It's actually very interesting. And most people don't know why anxiety causes tummy aches. One of the reasons is, is because when you are worrying and you fire off that fight or flight system that makes your body primitively believe that you're in a state of an emergency, it shuts down your digestive system. And when your digestive system shuts down, you don't feel good. You feel nauseous when I say, as I say to kids, which they like this expression, so go ahead and use it. Um, when things aren't working well from hole to hole, when things aren't moving smoothly from hole to <laughs> hole, you don't feel good. And anxiety wreaks havoc, worry, and setting off this fight or flight system wreaks havoc with our digestive system. So it's not at all unusual that your tummy feels weird, that you feel sick to your stomach. The, the secret to this or sort of the way out of this is to know that that's what's happening because the response to the physical symptom is what makes this thing debilitating. If the goal is to get rid of the physical symptom, if you say, well, I'm feeling so anxious or I'm feeling sick to my stomach and, and you focus on that, and then the goal is to not feel this way, that's when you start to make those accommodations or those adjustments in your life. So if somebody said to him, the two words that I can't live without as an anxiety person, the two words, of course. Of course your tummy is bothering you because we know that you have a tendency to worry about things. We're working on the ability to tolerate the uncertainty of going into high school. But a side effect of creating these narratives that you're creating is that your poor amygdala thinks that you're being chased by a grizzly bear and it keeps shutting down your digestive system and then you get a stomach ache. 
yeah. then you lose your appetite. And so if you give kids that information, then when it happens, the stomach ache isn't the problem. The stomach ache is just a side effect of now of a process that we better understand. It is, it's really common for people to get very focused on the physical symptoms of anxiety for sure. And that's what, that's what takes a lot of people out of their lives is that they, they see the physical symptom as the problem that they need to get rid of, mm -hmm. which is, which is, you know, why kids miss school or why they go to the doctor all the time. It's called some, a somatization disorder, which you're overly focused on your physical symptoms. Yeah. So I would really just make sure that he knows why that's happening in that way. Yeah. One of the things that we've both talked about, like we've sort of alluded to it and skimmed to the surface of it, but we haven't shined a light on it. And I think we need to, mm -hmm. is that a significant element of treatment for anxiety is awareness and acceptance mm -hmm. and just kind of yep. being like, yeah, that's a thing. Like, yeah, it sucks to be uncertain. Like it yep. stinks that you have a stomach ache. Like that mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the more we fight against it, the worse it gets. Correct. So the, the line in the anxiety world is what you resist persists. And anxiety is paradoxical in that way that the more you push against these feelings, the more you push against the thoughts, the more you try and get rid of them, the more you see the symptoms that you're having as problematic or emergent, the stronger this thing gets. So you're exactly right. There is a huge amount of allowing. And so we can allow and say, yes, I feel this way. And then if we're really going after this thing, then we're going to do the opposite of what the disorder demands, which means that not only are we going to allow, then we're going to step in and we're going to provoke on purpose to give the brain the opportunity to relearn. Anxiety treatment has to be experiential because the amygdala learns experientially. So we've got to step in. We've got to get through it. It's sort of like, you know, if you're trying to stop smoking cigarettes, which I know is like an outdated thing, but some people- <laughs> Vaping, you're trying to stop yeah, vaping. Start, start, okay, okay, thanks, thanks. Um, and, and you know you're going to have a craving. Let's just say you're trying to stop, eat stop you know, eating so much chocolate. You know you're going to have a craving. The goal isn't to try and get rid of the cravings if you want to interrupt this pattern. The goal is to allow the craving to show up, which it will show up when you don't ingest the substance, ride through the craving, allow your brain to have this experience, which we call habituation of saying like, okay, this is uncomfortable. Let me hang out. Let me hang out. Let me hang out. And then have those symptoms decrease over time. That's the same thing that we're doing with anxiety. This is why trying to make sure that somebody is never triggered is the exact opposite of what we're doing with this. So there's an acceptance for sure but at the beginning of treatment or as we're moving through and trying to decrease the symptoms, it's really, we're doing the opposite of what people want to do. And we're doing the opposite of what the disorder demands, which means we're stepping in, stepping in, stepping in cool. without resistance. We can't, you can't step in and be like, oh, okay, I have to go near the spider. Because ah! then your poor amygdala is just thinking the same, you know, same is like, stuff. oh gosh, right. But if you say like, I'm going to go near this spider because I'm tired of this anxiety bossing me around. And I'm tired of it tricking me into thinking this is an emergency. Well, let's go bring it on. Then, man, do we make progress. As we kind of bring things in for a landing, mm -hmm. before we go to the ending essential, I want I want to put you on a soapbox. 
I want to okay. I want to I want to pull your soapbox out for you. All right, I got it. It's always near. <laughs> Cuz I had the same soapbox. I read it the book and was like, I don't know why that's controversial. She's right. Yeah. Can we talk about why tracking apps and all of that yes. stuff is not the best call? <laughs> yes, yeehaw. I love talking about why tracking apps aren't the best call. Anxiety demands certainty. So now we have these devices. I, I sometimes refer to smartphones as certainty devices. If you are saying to your kids, and if your kids are saying to you, because it's it's working both ways now, in order for you to move out into the world, I need you to let me know exactly where you are all the time. And we even have this device that gets rid of our ability to even responsibly communicate. You don't even have to tell me where you are all the time. I don't even have to promote the skill of being a responsible person. All we have to do is let our machines, our devices, our certainty devices do all the work for us. And this will allow us to eliminate all uncertainty and eliminate the need for you to pull your head out of your butt and text your mom or your dad and tell them that you're going to be late. Tracking apps do not support independent problem solving. They do not support autonomy. They do not support the toleration of uncertainty. And what we know also what we're seeing is that it is becoming more and more common in relationships with young people to have the expectation that I'm going to know where you are all the time. And I know I don't have daughters, I have sons, but if I had a daughter and my daughter said to me, well, my boyfriend or my girlfriend says that I have to have, we have to have a tracking app or, you know, they have to know where I am all the time because they want to make sure that they know where I am all the time. I think that would give a lot of parents the heebie-jeebies. Mm -hmm. And yet we are modeling that with our own tracking apps. People will argue with me and they have argued with me. It's convenient. It makes me sleep better at night. I want to know where they are. If something bad happened, then I would be able to go to their rescue. Every once in a while, there are there's a situation in which that is the case. But in general, having your kids on a trapping, tracking app it doesn't stop when they get into college. It doesn't stop when they become adults. I mean, I was talking to a woman. She was the head of a prestigious school in Canada. Her daughter was across the country in a PhD psychology program. And she confessed to me, I have her on a tracking app. What are you going to do? She's in a different country. What are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, how do you even know what's going on? I mean, I had I had one parent say to me, well, when my son goes to college, the reason that I have him on a tracking app is because it just makes me feel better to know that his head is on his pillow every night. Every night. And I said to her, do you want to know who else's head is on his pillow too? Because that's really intrusive. Also, his head shouldn't be on his pillow every single night. Correct. It should be, who, who cares where? It, it could be on somebody else's pillow, right? Yeah. It's fun to have your head on other people's pillows. You could be sleeping on the beach one night. Like, who cares? <laughs> right, exactly. So it's this idea of control that I need to know where you are. I mean, I've had parents do it in a way that, you know, I had a parent say to me, he says, well, he has ADHD. And so he has a really hard time getting to class. He was in college. And she said, so I have his schedule. And I can look at his phone. Now, I know that he has a chemistry lab that starts at 830. Oh. And I can watch and see if he's not moving across campus by 815, then I'm going to call him 
and remind him that his chemistry lab starts at 8.30. It takes him 12 minutes to watch walk across campus, and it's my job to make sure he gets there. But he'll never be able to get there if you don't let go. Correct. What are you, you going to do that when he's 40? Like, that's bananas. Yes. That's bananas. That's the answer. Yes, I'm going to do it when he's 40. I mean, and so and so tracking apps for so many reasons are just not a good idea. Yeah. I don't and I don't say and people will say, oh, so my kids should just go ever. You know, people will go all or nothing on me. They'll say, oh, so I should just not pay attention to where they are. I shouldn't know. Yeah. No, no, you should. But what one of the skills I, I I'm fine to- with that. Like my yeah. guys are 13 because here's here's my lens on this. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. They should have adventures. Yes. Like that's your kids should have adventures and mm-hmm. you don't need to know anything about those adventures mm-hmm. growing up. And still, I am a wicked Pollyanna. Mm-hmm. I have not done a lot of things wrong in my life. I like mm-hmm. listened to all the 1980s cartoons and bought mm-hmm. in totally to that morality. Mm-hmm. And I still had adventures. My parents don't need to know about. Correct. So, and I was the kid who, when his high school buddy was hooked on heroin, hung out with me every day for a month to quit heroin. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how good I was. Right. Um, don't let your kid Same. have adventures. Yeah. Um, I was walking with with Reed Wilson, who is my pal, who I wrote two of my books with. And we were at some conference teaching together. And his kids are older than mine. And so I think probably he was, my son was probably 15. And he asked, was asking me about it asking about him. And I was saying, oh, he's doing this and this and this. And Reed said to me, you know, he has a whole life going on that you know nothing about. And that's how it's supposed to be. And I just, I just soaked that in, you know, it was, it was affirmation of that's what I want for my kids, but it was just so good to hear this like wiser, older dad say that to me about my son. They're supposed to do things behind your back. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to do things behind your back. I'm, I'm saying that as a dad of teenagers. Yeah. Well, I was like, a mom of two teens. They're, you know, yeah. they're, they're 24 and 22 now. So of course they're supposed to be doing things behind my back, but I wanted them to have adventures. That's exactly right. One of my biggest senses of loss, thanks to COVID is that my kids are not more independent and away from me because that reined everybody in so much right. for so long that my guys aren't just wandering away and, and doing stuff. They only wander away if I drive them to somewhere and then leave. <laughs> like then they'll then yeah. they'll like make make their way home or something. But they're not going to leave the house voluntarily in the way that I wish that they were. Yeah. And, and with all of that said, just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I think probably the message I'd really want people to know is that human beings have a range of emotions, and worry and anxiety and mood and depression are on a huge range of normal human experiences. And that I really wanna make sure that we are very aware of a current trend right now of pathologizing normal human emotions in a way that our young people are taking in. And as we were saying before, saying sort of like, this is my anxiety or this is my depression. There's a lot of self-diagnosis going on. Um, I think we need to really be careful that our goal of increasing mental health awareness has a downside that I'm seeing now, where we're really saying to kids, you have this disease, you have this illness, you have this disorder, so we're going to make sure we don't ask things of you, and I feel like that's really moving in the wrong direction. There's a huge range of what's normal in terms of worry and stress and managing your emotions. And that's what we need to talk to kids about. 
you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.